If you would take your Bibles and turn to the book of Jonah, we'll be looking at chapter 3 this morning. And you can find that if you have a red Bible on page 775. And as you turn to Jonah, would you stand with me if you are able for the reading of God's holy, inerrant, and inspired word. Hear the word of the Lord. The word of the Lord came to Jonah the second time, saying, Arise, go to Nineveh, that great city, and call out against it the message that I tell you. So Jonah arose and went to Nineveh according to the word of the Lord. Now Nineveh was an exceedingly great city, three days' journey in breadth. Jonah began to go into the city, going a day's journey, and he called out, Yet forty days, and Nineveh shall be overthrown. And the people of Nineveh believed God. They called for a fast and put on sackcloth from the greatest of them to the least of them. The word of the Lord, or the word, reached the king of Nineveh, and he rose from his throne, removed his robe, covered himself with sackcloth, and sat in ashes. And he issued a proclamation and published through Nineveh by the decree of the king and his nobles, let neither man nor beast, herd nor flock taste anything. Let them not feed or drink water, but let man and beast be covered with sackcloth, and let them call out mightily to God. Let everyone turn from his evil way and from the violence that is in his hands. Who knows? God may turn and relent and turn from his fierce anger so that we may not perish. When God saw what they did, how they turned from their evil way, God relented of the disaster that he said he would do to them, and he did not do it. Would you pray with me? Our Father, we ask that in these moments together as we look at Jonah chapter 3, that you would open our hearts and minds to the abounding mercy with which you have pursued us in our lives and the mercy that you extend to those who are living in rebellion against you. And would you build in us a sense of your mercy that we may share and extend that to others. Above all, make us merciful people. And so in this time together, by your power, we do pray, you would open our hearts to your word. And we pray in Jesus' name, amen. You may be seated. I grew up probably, as many of you did in a revivalistic culture. Those were the days of Bob Harrington, the evangelist of Bourbon Street in New Orleans, Louisiana. And Billy Graham took his crusade ministry worldwide. Now perhaps some of you were converted, uh, either attending a Billy Graham crusade or watching via television as the buses waited. As great as their evangelistic events were, they pale in comparison to this story of Nineveh. It's striking to me that if you want to see an example of repentance in the Old Testament, where you have to turn to is the book of Jonah and to the city of Nineveh, not to Israel. James Montgomery Boyce said of Nineveh's repentance, this was the greatest and most thorough revival that has ever taken place. It is truly a remarkable thing that happened in Nineveh. Jonah was a prophet to the northern kingdom, and his prophetic ministry in the northern kingdom, those ten northern tribes, 
I had basically two highlights. You can find one highlight in 2 Kings 14 where uh, Jonah prophesied concerning the northern kingdom. And as you study the history of the Old Testament, you'll find that the history of the northern kingdom and the history of Assyria are intertwined. It seems that the Lord raised up Assyria in order to humble the northern kingdom because of their idolatry. By the time of Jonah, the northern kingdom had paid tribute to Assyria for 60 years, and it was teetering on collapse. God had mercy on the northern kingdom, raised up Jeroboam II to be their king, and sent Jonah to prophesy to the northern kingdom of a turn of their fortunes and of the restoration of their borders to even the days of Solomon. Now, when you read that in 2 Kings 14, it is remarkable. But if you didn't notice, there's an 800-pound gorilla sitting in that room. And that 800-pound gorilla is the fact that the northern kingdom, their restoration was not due to their repentance. God just determined to have mercy and change their fortunes. Now at the same time then that Israel began to ascend according to the prophecy that Jonah gave in 2 Kings 14, uh, or the same time Israel began to ascend, Assyria began a steep decline. They worked together just like that. This is the way it goes. God, however, was not finished with Assyria, but their wickedness, we're told in chapter 1, verse 2 of the book of Jonah, came up before the Lord. So when the Lord told Jonah to go the first time, he said, their evil has come up before me. Now the Lord would ultimately use Assyria to exile the northern kingdom, to literally destroy them and take them out of the land. But for now, the Lord is dealing with Assyria. And the time had come to either judge them or save them. So just as the Lord had sent Jonah to preach to the northern kingdom, he took that same prophet and he sent him to preach to the city of Nineveh. The last thing that Jonah wanted in the whole wide world was to see Nineveh spared. The Ninevites, however, repeated at the preaching of Jonah, and God relented of the evil that he said he would do to them. These realities highlight the message of the book of Jonah. God is merciful. The book illustrates God's mercy by showing his mercy at work in the prophet Jonah himself, by showing his mercy at work in the sailors that we saw in chapter 1 that ended up sacrificing and making vows and calling on Yahweh, the God of Israel. And now we're going to see God's mercy in Nineveh. Now all of these, Jonah, the sailors, Nineveh, are examples of the extreme nature of the mercy of God. I want us to, I want us to begin to feel that this morning, the extreme nature of mercy. His mercy is not less extreme in Jonah than it is in Nineveh. It's not less extreme in Israel than it is in my life or in your life or in, in, or in anybody's life. It seems that sometimes we can think the book of Jonah is particularly about the conversion of Nineveh. But that's not what the book is about. The conversion of Nineveh is about the mercy of God. What better way was there to teach you and me, to teach Jonah and to teach Israel that God is a God of mercy? Now, the irony is Jonah was so thankful for the mercy that he had been shown when the fish swallowed him uh, and ultimately vomited him out, but he thought that the Ninevites were undeserving of mercy. I deserved mercy. They don't deserve mercy. Mercy, brothers and sisters, 
by definition, is undeserved. Had Jonah forgotten the undeserved nature of the mercy of God? Now, if the fish was to teach Jonah anything, it was to teach him that he did not deserve God's mercy. Does that truth not give you hope for the world? There's no one who deserves the mercy of God. Yet God is a merciful God, and for even the most rebellious, for even the most wayward nation in the world, or the most wayward person in the world, perhaps God has a purpose of mercy that will prevail in his or her or their life. Now, I've been learning a lot about mercy lately, And the question comes to me, why is mercy so offensive? It's offensive to receive, and it's offensive to show. We have a hard time rejoicing when people receive good that they do not deserve. And you may even hear us say that. When somebody, something good happens to somebody, we'll say, well, he didn't deserve that. I have found that I have much more in common with Jonah than I would like to think. It is with good reason that in the story, in the parable of the prodigal son, the Lord included the story of the elder brother. He just could not stand the mercy that was extended to his wayward brother. We find sometimes something offensive about mercy. God is a merciful God. Now what can we learn about God's mercy from Jonah chapter 3? Number one, in Jonah we see God's mercy to his people. I think we can see that in verses 1 through 4, God's mercy to his people. When you look at chapter 3, after you get through verse 5, Jonah disappears from view, and the focus of the chapter shifts to Nineveh and God, and it will not pick the character of Jonah up again until we get to chapter 4. Now, while uh, there are similarities to the beginning of chapter 3 and the beginning of the book of Jonah in chapter 1, there are also differences that are highlighted in these early verses. The similarities, it seems like, show us that God has hit the reset button on his prophet um, and he's starting over. Now, notice again in chapter 3, verse 1 and 2, Then the word of the Lord came to Jonah the second time, saying, Arise and go to Nineveh, that great city, and call out against it the message that I tell you. That sounds familiar, because if you look in chapter 1, verse 1, it says, Now the word of the Lord came to Jonah the son of Amittai, saying, Arise and go to Nineveh, that great city, and call out against it, for their evil has come up before me. You can see similarities in the beginning of these two chapters. It's like a reset. But you also see differences. We're told in chapter 3, this is the second time that the word of the Lord came to Jonah. Friends, when you see that, those words, second time, does that not scream the mercy of God? God is being merciful to Jonah. Now, perhaps Jonah thought God was finished with him. I don't know, but we could conjecture a bit. Perhaps he thought God was finished with him when the fish vomited him out. I mean, after all, vomit out is typically not a sign God is looking on you favorably in the Old Testament. It is a bad sign. However, in this case, it's the very opposite. God's mercy has triumphed over his judgment in the life of Jonah, and Jonah is alive and well and good on the shore, having had a ride in a fish for three days and three nights. God was merciful to Jonah in sparing his life and in commissioning him again, but Jonah, the man, was not right. 
something was wrong in him. In fact, he'll get downright angry over the result of his preaching when the Ninevites repent. And in chapter 4, verse 1, this is what the book tells us. But it displeased Jonah exceedingly, and he was angry. He did not like the mercy of God. It was offensive to him, except it was toward him. He was the exception to the rule. But God, in chapter 4, will come to Jonah again. God had set his affection on Jonah. Mercy had Jonah in its grip. And no matter how stubborn he was, no matter how big that hole was right in the middle of Jonah, and no matter how much he tried to fill it with angry or with anger, mercy would not let Jonah go. Jonah was not in pursuit of mercy, but mercy was in pursuit of Jonah. And brothers and sisters, if God is mercifully pursuing you this morning, you better hang on. It's going to be a wild ride. And you ought to be thankful too. The word of the Lord came to Jonah a second time, saying, Arise and go to Nineveh. And the text tells us this time, instead of arising and going in the opposite direction, that Jonah, in verse 3 of our text, rose and went to Nineveh according to the word of the Lord. Jonah obeyed and went to Nineveh, but his heart was not in it. And we'll get back to that in chapter 4. Now, Jonah was to go and preach to Nineveh the message that the Lord would tell him. You see that at the very end of verse 2. Um, now, he, uh, he walks into Nineveh, and on the first day of what was going to be a three-day preaching tour, the Lord gave Jonah that message. So what message was he going to tell him? We can see it in verse Four, the last part of the verse. Yet forty days, and Nineveh shall be overthrown. One day in to a three-day journey, an eight-word sermon. Yet forty days, and Nineveh shall be overthrown. That is an interesting choice of words for a sermon anywhere, less often Nineveh. And what's interesting about it is the use of the word overthrown. I don't know about you, but you read that first time, and you get the feeling that what that word means is he's going to destroy them. But when you see the way that word is used in the Old Testament, it's used in two senses. It can and does mean overthrow in terms of destroy. And eventually God will destroy Nineveh and Assyria. But it can also mean turn around in the sense of repentance. To be overthrown by mercy. Now Jonah knows that. And uh, it makes it kind of hard for him in his preaching. But these words hold if Nineveh is destroyed or if Nineveh repents. Jonah hopes the former. Nineveh hopes the latter. There is a threat of judgment in these words. And there is hope for mercy. Now in the second part of verse 3, we have, it's kind of like a parenthesis, it's a, an extended description of Nineveh. It says, now Nineveh was an exceedingly great city, three days' journey in breadth. This differs from the previous descriptions of Nineveh. We have one in chapter 1, verse 2, and in chapter 3, verse 2, and both of those are exactly alike. It just simply says that Nineveh was a great city. But here we have the word exceedingly added to that in the last part of verse 3. Now, Nineveh was an exceedingly great city three days in journey. 
Now, if you have the ESV, which is what I'm preaching from, you have a footnote. Perhaps you have that footnote in your uh, copy of God's Word. And uh, there's an alternative reading where it says, a great city to God. That's translated here in our text as exceedingly. In other words, that word exceedingly is the word Elohim, that great Old Testament word that we understand as God. And so the translators that translate it exceedingly think that it is simply used as a superlative, but the burden of proof rides on them. There are others that say, no, we need to retain the reading, Elohim, or the reading God, that it was simply an important city to God. And I think those who are arguing for the retaining of Elohim, God, are keeping in the flow of the meaning of the book of Jonah. The book will close with the Lord's final words to Jonah in defense of his mercy, mercy to Nineveh in uh, verse 11, the very last verse of the book. Should I not pity Nineveh, that great city in which there are more than 120,000 persons who do not know their right hand from their left and also much cattle? Now, how in the world was Nineveh important to God? It was not important to God in the sense that God was somehow dependent on Nineveh. It was important to him for that time because God was as determined to be merciful to Nineveh as he was determined to be merciful to Jonah. And that's locked up simply in the character of our God because Jonah becomes one to us who illustrates that our God is a merciful God. That's who he is. Number two, in Nineveh, we see the pattern of turning to God. In Nineveh, we see the pattern of turning to God. So you can see that in verses 5 through 9, this eight-word sermon that uh, he delivers for us in verse 4. It's even shorter in Hebrew. It's five words in Hebrew. Uh, Jonah preached it, and remarkably, Nineveh repented. Now, it's no small thing that Jonah went to Nineveh. We just think of a guy waltzing in Nineveh, and he starts preaching on the street. That's not necessarily how that works, because if you go to Nineveh, especially if you're an Israelite prophet, in fact, if you were anybody else, and you went to Nineveh, and you started to preach on the street, you would last about two seconds, and someone would send you to, your, to the great beyond, to your reward, beyond the stars. Jonah, however, was a sign to the Ninevites. He was a living parable of one who had been overthrown by the mercy of God. And rather than anger and violence grabbing them at the preaching of Jonah, the Spirit of God came on them and they turned to the living God. And so we have in verse 5, and the people of Nineveh believed God. That is one of the most surprising sentences in all the Bible. And the people of Nineveh believed God. They called for a fast and put on sackcloth from the greatest of them to the least of them. So in Nineveh, we see a pattern of people turning to God. What you have in verses 5 through 9 is two basic conditions that arise that are essential for any uh, turning to God that's genuine. What you have is faith. You can see that in the start of verse 5, and Nineveh believed God. That's faith. And you can see it also in the last part of verse 8, repentance. The king called on them to uh, turn from their evil way and from violence in their hand. And so believing is faith and turning is repentance. And that word turn is, is translated turn every time in this text. And every time it is the most common word in the Old Testament for repentance. It means to repent. And so they're being called on to place their faith in God and then to repent of their evil ways. Now when you back up and look at the book of Jonah, what you see is their faith and repentance are the result of the prior work of God. Faith and repentance are inseparable graces or gifts that come from God. 
Genuine faith is never devoid of repentance, and genuine repentance is always expressed in faith. These two come together. And repentance and faith are the necessary conditions for justification, not the cause of justification. You can see that in the way the king expresses uh, in verse 9, who knows God may turn. Now we saw that same kind of language in chapter 1 in the sea captain when he goes and wakes Jonah up and says, what do you mean, O sleeper? Arise and call on your God. He says in verse 6, perhaps the God will give a thought to us that we will not perish. God is free to save and to judge, and no one can accuse him of wrongdoing. There's no presuming on the grace of God in Nineveh. Who knows, says the king. Maybe God will turn and relent and turn. So there's no presuming. There's no formula faith. There are no spells and incantations and the repeating of certain phrases to somehow coax or manipulate God into behaving in a way that we want the living God to behave. So I know, I know God is merciful, but I fear that there's a familiarity with those who are immersed in the Christian faith that is destructive to their souls. They somehow see that God is obligated to save. You say the phrase, and God does the save. It's just his job. Genuine, heartfelt, and life-changing repentance are the necessary conditions for salvation, not the cause. What is the cause? The cause is the sheer mercy and grace of God that moves him to save the believing. The cause is within God himself, the God who is God, the God who is merciful. He finds it in himself. He doesn't look to you to find the cause of saving but it's within the nature of who God is. So salvation is not a cause and effect proposition where the cause is with me having an effect on God and somehow moving God to have compassion toward me. Rather, the cause is God, and the effect is that I am moved by his work in me to repent and believe. And so verse 10 says, When God saw what they did, how they turned from their evil ways, God relented. That word, when God saw what they did, that is a word that's literally their deeds, when he saw their works. Then he turned and relented. What work did God see in the Ninevites? What he saw in them was his prior work of mercy in their life to bring them to the place of faith and repentance. Now, this is an important point in the book of Jonah. If you don't get this point, you're going to misunderstand the book. God had been at work in Nineveh long before Jonah had ever gotten there. Jonah at first went in the opposite direction of Nineveh in order to flee the presence of God. But when he went to Nineveh, he ran smack dab into the presence of the living God. God had been in Nineveh long before Jonah ever got there. God was working in the Ninevites. Always was struck by the fact on the mission field that wherever I went, wherever I preached the gospel, God had already been there. It didn't matter the response. People could be antagonistic. Some people need to get antagonistic. It didn't matter. 
But the living God was already there, and I came to see that missions is simply playing catch-up to the prior work of God in the world. This is what Paul saw when he went to Athens and went on Mars Hill, and they had a statue to the unknown God, and he said, God's been up here working among these philosophers. God is making himself known in the world. Genuine saving faith and heartfelt repentance are always, not sometime, but absolutely always, the result of God's prior work. So what do genuine faith and repentance look like? We have an example in Nineveh. And the scripture tells us in the first part of verse 5, they believed God. That phrase, believe God, is huge in Old Testament and New Testament language. That is the words that describe Abraham's justification by faith in Genesis 15, 6. That's where they appear. And those words are powerful words. And Paul picked them up in Romans 4 and in Galatians 3. And James picked them up in James chapter 2. There's no reason to think that their, that their meaning is any different here than they are in those other texts. And so this reference, leaking the faith of the Ninevites, to the same quality of the faith of Abraham is the Bible's way of saying if you want to see genuine faith right here it is if you want to see pagans converted right here it is they believed God we should pay attention to it because faith is the necessary condition of justification I want to tell you, brothers and sisters, if God is going to declare you justified and not guilty of your sin, it is going to be because of his prior work of grace in your heart, giving you faith and bringing you to believe the truth of the gospel, or you will not believe. So we see their faith, and we see their repentance. These two always go together. Now, you can see their repentance in the last part of verse 8, where the king says, Let everyone turn from his evil way and from the violence that is in his hands. There we are, back on this. This is repentance. Now, in these verses, 5b through verse 8, you can see their repentance in two ways. One is their self-humbling. And two, there's turning from sin. When they heard Jonah's message, the people of Nineveh took initiative to call for a fast and they put on sackcloth. This is a grassroots movement of self-humbling. It's citywide. The scripture tells us it was from the greatest to the least they humbled themselves before the Lord. That's what fasting and sackcloth is about. It's about humbling themselves before the Lord. And you can see the greatest because next we're introduced to the king in verse 6. And the king heard, word reached him, and notice our dear king. He humbled himself by rising from the throne, removing his robe, putting on sackcloth, and he sat down in an ash heap. That's self-humbling. We need a few kings to do that now. And a lot of other people. Maybe you, dear friend. Perhaps me. The king intensified and expanded the people's outward show of humility by adding water to the fast and saying, even the animals, put sackcloth on them and don't let them have anything to eat or drink and everybody call out mightily to God. And you can hear it. The cattle are lowing and the people are moaning and in that call, they are calling on the God of heaven to have mercy on their souls. Call out. Call out mightily to God. That phrase is repeated, call out, over and over in the book of Jonah, especially in the first three chapters. 
And it is an exhortation that we need because Joel the prophet, and Paul is going to pick it up in Romans 10, for everyone who calls on the name of the Lord shall be saved. That is good news. So true repentance is always accompanied by expressions of self-humbling. Faith and repentance have physical, tangible expressions that reflect spiritual realities. In fact, at the close of the service, which is not right now, but at the close, we're going to come to the table, and that is a tangible expression of faith alone in the Lord Jesus Christ that we share as a body of believers. Faith and repentance have tangible expressions. Now, I've never seen anyone put on sheep's hair, a sackcloth, and sit in ashes and, and not eat and call on God mightily. Maybe, maybe we need to get back to that, but I'll tell you what I did see. A dear brother, one time, hadn't been to church for a long time, but his wife and kids always went. And he decided one Sunday, for a reason beyond him, that he would go to church. And while he was there, God gave him repentance and broke his heart over his sin. He went home and he cried all day. His family didn't have any, re didn't have any knowledge of what was wrong with him. They tried to console him, but he couldn't speak to him. And his life was changed. He served the Lord for decades after that, all the way until he went home to be with the Lord. Tangible expressions. Now, brothers and sisters, you can repent and express faith and be dry-eyed. But maybe some of us have been dry-eyed a bit too long. And we've made peace with our sin. You see, these folks humbled themselves. Now, the second thing that comes with repentance is turning from sin. The king called on them to turn from their evil ways and violence. That is, there was complete continuity between their self-humbling, the expression of their repentance, and the reality of their hearts, their actual faith and repentance. Now, I want you to notice, this is not just some kind of corporate repentance where everybody says, okay, God, we're sorry. Notice the words of the king. It's let everyone, you and you and you and you, every one of you, feel the weight of your sin and turn to the living God. So their hope in believing and turning to God is that their sin might be forgiven as evidenced by God turning and relenting and turning from his fierce anger so that they may not perish, says verse 9. Who knows, the king says, God may turn and relent. Dear friend, perhaps part of the problem with your inability to turn from sin, if that's you, is your sin has not become so abhorrent that you're willing to suffer the pain of leaving it. There's some kind of comfort, some kind of hope that you find in it. We can think, I really don't, have to make changes. I can, I can keep feeding and indulging myself and, and not making any life changes and somehow become a better man, become a better woman, become a better teenager. Paul buffeted his body and kept it in subjection. The fruit of the Spirit is self-control. What do you mean you can't stop sin? That sin. Whatever that sin is. 
What do you mean that you can't turn away from it? What's wrong with you? Don't you know that in the gospel of Christ, the power of sin has been broken? And Paul said, sin will no longer have dominion over you. Quit bowing to what's been dethroned. In Nineveh, we see the pattern of turning to God. I want you to notice third, that in God we see the possibility of mercy. The question in your heart might be this morning, will God forgive me? Perhaps you're at a place in your life and you think, there's no way back for me. I'm too far gone. There's no better news to hear than the possibility that God may yet be merciful to you. His compassion may overthrow your life. That's what happened in Nineveh. If I'd been a betting man and someone said, we're taking odds on Nineveh repenting, I would have voted with Jonah. I guess bet. We're talking about betting, right? I would, you could tell I don't bet, right? I'm too tight. In verses 9 and 10, we have the language of repenting and relenting. Repenting and relenting. Do you you see that language, turning and relenting? That's repenting and relenting. The repentance of the Ninevites is contrasted with the relenting of God. And I think the king of Nineveh, as pagan as he was and unlearned and uninstructed as he was, he had a much better concept of these things and he, he was not struggling over how they fit together than people today who perhaps have studied these things might have. And so the king properly calls God's turning relenting. Did you notice how he put it in verse 9? God may turn and relent. What is God's turning? God's turning is relenting. Men repent, God relents. Well, how in the world can the God who does not change turn from wrath to mercy? The answer is right here, by relenting. That's how. Now, he doesn't repent the way people repent. When people repent, they turn from sin and experience of change of mind and heart and action. They, in their conversion, are given a new nature created after the Son of God. But God is not like a man. The scripture tells us God is not a man that he should lie or the son of man that he should change his mind. God is immutable. He does not change. He's not some wishy-washy God who can't make up his mind. What am I going to do with Nineveh? Let's see how Nineveh responds to the preaching of my prophet. And if perhaps they repent, then I'll relent. And if they don't, then I'll dust them really well. That's not God. When people relent, they change their mind. When God relents, he acts in mercy and compassion towards sinners that is consistent with his unchangeable character as revealed in the Bible. Now, I don't know if the king had also been reading the prophet Joel, but the king... (laughs) I mean, he grabs this right from the book of Joel when he says in verse 9, who knows whether he will turn and relent. That is Joel chapter 2, verse 14. Only Joel adds, turn and relent and leave a blessing behind him. Joel has taken up the same theme, which is in uh, Jonah, and they are both wrestling with it. Here we are, we have these prophets wrestling with this theme of the mercy of God and God relenting. How can this be? How can the God of the Bible do that? Now, from where you wonder, 
Don't you? From where did these prophets get this language? God being merciful and kind and God relenting from the evil that he's intended to do. Well, as Lee said about the writer of Hebrews, who was a good reader of his Bible, Jonah and Joel were good readers of their Bibles. They read the Old Testament closely. And by the way, I recommend it. You should read it very closely and pour yourself into it because it is a wonderful, wonderful book. So Jonah and Joel take Exodus 32 that Lee read for the call to worship, and they take Exodus 34 that Lee referred to in his prayer at the end of the call of worship, and they put these things together, just like Lee did in his reading and praying. Because these two things belong together. Exodus 32, you know what it is, it's the sin of the golden calf. And God was like, Moses, I'm going to wipe them out, I'm going to destroy them, I'm going to start over. I'll start with you. Moses prays, God, don't do that. And God relented. I mean, you get the feeling in that text, God is saying to Moses, I'm going to do it, Moses, you pray, because I'm not going to do it, Moses. I'm going to relent. And I just want you to learn the kind of God I am. That's who he is. He is the merciful God. So what Exodus, Exodus 32 and Exodus 34, they're bookends of the golden calf story. They're bookends. And they're bookended in order to teach us what we need to learn about God from that story. So in Exodus 32, Moses relented, or, or Moses prayed and God relented. That is the first time in the scripture that the concept of God relenting ever is mentioned. And those prophets saw it, and it's huge to them. God relenting? Well, they not only saw Exodus 32, they saw Exodus 34, the bookend of it. Because the question came to their mind, how can the God of Exodus 32, who gave the law and these people made a golden calf and worshipped it, how can that God relent? Exodus 34 is how he can relent. Why? Because in Exodus 34, he proclaimed his name, his very nature to Moses. And he revealed his glory. And he said, the Lord, the God merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin. God is revealing who he is within his nature. And he's saying, Moses, you want to know my name? Here's my name. I am the God who is merciful and abounding in steadfast love. I don't have to change to have mercy on sinners. That's the God that I am. What a merciful, merciful God. You think Jonah didn't put these together? Look what he says in chapter 4. Last part of verse 2. For I knew that you were a gracious God and merciful, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and relenting from disaster. Exodus 32. Exodus 34. So we have the answer to the king's question. Who knows? Jonah knew the answer. Jesus answered that question as well. He said, all that the Father gives to me will come to me. And the one who comes to me, I will in no wise cast out. Brothers and sisters, I can get a hold of the last part of that text and swing over hell with it. 
When you come to him in genuine faith and repentance, he will not cast you away. Why? Because our God is merciful. And your coming is his strange work in you. Perhaps you've never placed your faith in the Lord Jesus. Oh, and I pray today that you would find the mercy of Christ in Jonah chapter 3. And see that he is the God who will overthrow your life to be kind to you. If you don't know Christ, I plead with you to place your faith in Christ this morning. And if you place your faith in him, you don't have to come to me and tell me I'm I'm not the Baptist priest. I'm just like you, one who believes and hopes in Christ. Just share with your neighbor. Tell him you've come to faith. And then I want to challenge you to make that public in baptism. This is where you make it public, right here in baptism. Declaring that your faith is in Christ alone. This morning we're going to come to the Lord's table. If you're a member of a church in good standing, if your faith is in Christ alone for salvation, then we invite you to come to the table with us. And the way we'll do this is there will be two pastors in the front, one pastor in the overflow holding trays. And the trays have uh, a stack of two cups, one with bread and one with juice. You just grab one stack and then go back to your seat and wait, and we will eat and drink together. So the way we'll be dismissed is from the outside and come around to the inside to go back to our seats. So if you would, uh, bow your head for a moment. And perhaps this morning you stand in need of the mercy of God. You know Christ, and you know yourself, and you know the need of mercy that you have, and I pray that you would use this moment to spend time with the Lord. The Lord tells us if we confess our sins, He's faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. I want to encourage you to spend this time with Him, and then we'll come to the table together. Now, if you will uh, spend some time there with the Lord, then the band's going to come, and we'll We'll come to the table.